Not only are KPFK listeners smart, interesting, and forward-thinking, you're also very generous and deeply appreciated. Thank you so much for pledging your support to KPFK during our fun drive. Hi, this is Willie Nelson. You're listening to Radical Free Speech Radio, KPFK in Los Angeles. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Twenty twenty-three year marks the thirtieth anniversary of World Press Freedom Day, proclaimed by the United Nations General Assembly in December nineteen ninety-three. May third acts as a reminder to governments of the need to respect their commitment to press freedom, to raise awareness about the value of press freedom, the necessity of defending journalists' rights, and the need to support independent free media, along with paying tribute to journalists who have lost their lives in the line of duty. This year's theme for the day is Shaping a Future for Rights, Freedom of Expression as a Drive for All Other Human Rights. Good evening, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here are your today's headlines. Part two of Learned Lessons by UAW 2865 UCLA Strikers, Conditions in California Prisons, Granddaughter of Disney is Vocal about Workers' Rights at the Magical Kingdom, Air drone attack on the Kremlin, international news from outside the NATO control media sphere, and the community calendar, all this and more coming up. The city of Inglewood announces a community meeting on Thursday, May 4th, about the construction of the Intuit Dome with representatives from the AACOM-Turner Joint Venture Project Team. The Intuit Dome is a 28-acre sports and entertainment campus project on the southeast corner of Century Boulevard and Prairie Avenue. The project team will be available to answer construction-related questions from the community in person at Dolores Weta elementary school in the multi-purpose room at 4070 West 104th Street in Inglewood. This meeting is on Thursday, May 4th from 6 to 7 p.m. Also will be available on Facebook Live under Build Intuit Dome. Spanish interpretation will be provided during the meeting. To learn more, to learn more about the Intuit Dome, visit buildintuitdome.com or call 323 323- 638-9008 about the Intuit Dome community engagement update. With a harsh winter full of storms behind us and a long hot summer and fire season ahead of us, it's no secret that climate change is causing extreme weather. These conditions will exacerbate already poor conditions in states' prisons. Knock LA reporter Sarah Nickerson discusses the risk in her report with Meredith Gallen, member of the Los Angeles County Public Defenders Union. Gallen said that the while the weather is not her client's primary concern, the lack of preparation of county jails to withstand extreme natural conditions builds on the already existing issues her clients experience. One concern that Gallen raised is the spread of diseases such as COVID-19 and tuberculosis, which is exacerbated by lower temperatures. Nakamson report explains flooding from storms is another concern exacerbated by climate change. Two of the nine jail facilities in Los Angeles County are located within 500 feet of the high-risk flood zone, and that includes the Inmate Reception Center, IRC, that sits alongside the Los Angeles River. At least three of Los Angeles County's jail facilities, including the IRC, are also located within a mile of zones at risk for wildfires. 
Berkeley Donovan, L.A. County Jail's conditions advocate at ACLU SoCal, said that many L.A. County jails already experience flooding, but the jails are not transparent about the cause of the floods. Protocol, she said, is to move inmates to a new dorm if their toilets or showers flood, but that it won't happen if facility is at capacity or overcapacity due to lack of space. Donovan further states, quote, so people end up sitting in their cells that have been flooded and are damp for possibly days at a time before it actually gets addressed or fixed or they're able to move anywhere, end of quote. In the event that disaster hits, Gallen is skeptical of the county's emergency evacuation preparations, saying, quote, I would be shocked to learn of a safety plan that could accommodate the number of people who are currently housed in any of the four main jail facilities. I just don't think they're prepared, end of quote. Knock LA is always interested in receiving tips and pitches regarding conditions on the inside of jails and detention centers in Southern California. Get in touch, contact their incarceration desk at prisons at knock.la. Also check out KPFK's program, Think Outside the Cage with Jerry Silva about the prison industrial complex and the twisted roads that lead to it on Sundays, 9 a.m. Pacific time. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Here is Marcy Winograd with a report from Santa Barbara. The Santa Barbara Independent reports the city of Santa Barbara is broke, facing a $1.1 million budget deficit in 2024. Money is not coming in as fast as it's going out for expenses, and the city expects the deficit to grow to $4.8 million by 2025. According to city officials, salaries and employee benefits make up the majority of the city's general fund spending, the highest proportion of its money coming from income generated through the airport, water, waste, downtown parking, waterfront, and clean energy programs. Why the shortfall? The transient occupancy tax is slowing way down, along with the cannabis tax. And there are inflationary costs for salaries, pension, and infrastructure maintenance. Starting this week, the City of Santa Barbara will host public workshops with budget presentations for each department before the City Council officially adopts the budget on Tuesday, June 13th. Full details for the 2024 budget, including online tools, that allow the public to look into specific changes from one year to the next are available on the city's website, and that is santabarbaraca.org. In contrast, the county of Santa Barbara is not in the red. The Santa Barbara Board of Supervisors awarded over a million dollars of federal funding to the Santa Barbara Foundation to develop more child care, building on the one million awarded to the United Way back in mid-March. The Santa Barbara Foundation is tasked with raising the number of licensed infant and toddler spaces by 250, while United Way is expected to increase existing child care by 10%. Television station KEYT reports Santa Barbara County has joined other counties and the country in lighting up buildings and lime green. Lighting up buildings lime green, that's right, to shine a light on mental health during this May's Mental Health Month. It's all part of a movement called light up green. Santa Barbara County is inviting the community as well as other counties and our nation to light up buildings with lime green. Light up green is aimed to show community members that nobody is alone facing mental health challenges. This week, the U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy issued a warning. Loneliness is an epidemic and the health risks are profound. According to the Surgeon General, isolation and loneliness are as damaging to individual and public health as smoking and obesity. It's akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Living an isolated life, disconnected from friends, can have both mental and physical consequences. It puts people at greater risk for anxiety and depression and also increases the possibility of dementia by... 50%, stroke by 32%, heart disease by 29%. The LA Times reports a 2021 study commissioned by the Cigna Healthcare Company showed 79% of people ages 18 to 24 
reported feeling lonely, a rate nearly twice as high as that of seniors 66 and older. Some might blame the COVID-19 pandemic that shuttered schools and lockdowns and left teens feeling alone and isolated. But the fact is the rate of loneliness among young young adults increased every year from 1976 to 2019, preceding the start of the COVID pandemic. What to do if you're lonely? The Surgeon General recommends you take 15 minutes each day to contact a friend or a relative. While you're at it, scale back on social media. Virtual connection is not a replacement for in-person time. Serve others. Studies show that volunteering can ease feelings of loneliness and broaden social networks. We need a sense of purpose. There are lots of volunteer opportunities in Santa Barbara, from gardening in city parks to collecting food for the county food bank, to tutoring adults at the city's libraries, to tabling with our Central Coast Anti-War Coalition and Code Pink. Full disclosure, I am a member of both. Finally, if you're lonely, get help. Tell someone if you are struggling with loneliness. It could be a relative, a friend, a counselor, or a health care provider. And if you're having thoughts of harming yourself, call this number, 988-CRISIS-LINE. That's 988-CRISIS-LINE. In Santa Barbara, on Chumash land, I'm Marcy Winograd for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. KPFK brings voices of change not only to the airwaves, but also to events. Last Thursday, Abigail Disney did a Q&A with KPOK supporters at a virtual forum in Burbank. Sylvester Rivers reports. The discussion was around her new movie entitled American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. Yes, Disney is the granddaughter and great-niece of the two founding brothers of the Disney empire, Roy and Walt Disney. The movie is a transparent effort to show how workers are being underpaid and exploited not only at Disneyland, but throughout the United States. Abigail explains her family's reaction to the movie and how she came about championing workers' rights. You know, I haven't heard a word from them. I, I, I had an email exchange with Bob Iger very much at the beginning before I was even thinking about making a film, and it was unsatisfying and very dismissive and a bit and raging, to be truthful. Um, <clears throat> and then I've had radio silence ever since. I do know that that uh, we interviewed somebody at the food bank, and while we were there, they got a phone call and then kicked us out. Um, I do know that um, certain algorithms are not working in our favor at Amazon and other places. Wow. So um, I know they're messing with me. I know every journalist who's interviewed me has gotten an enraged phone call from publicity at the company. So mm-hmm. I know they're tracking me. I, they, they, they sent an automatic tweeter out, twit, tweet out to all my followers um, when I was being more frequently vocal about it. So I know they have somebody on me watching me, but, but they're quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more, like, they're more passive aggressive than you would imagine a mouse would be. I, you know, it's funny, my my family was very conservative. I was raised in a pretty conservative house, but I was raised with the kind of conservatives that we don't see much of in the public world anymore. Um, they were people who are conservative because they believed in, I don't know, old fashioned values. It's I can't find a better way of saying it, but my grandfather as a as an employer, he hated unions, he was super right wing. Um, but he loved the people who worked for him. Um, he may have been paternalistic about the way he understood, you know, how to relate to his workers, and I had problems with that. But, but, but at the heart of it, he really believed he wasn't any better or more important than any other human being in the world. And by my grandfather, I'm referring to Roy, not Walt. But I know they both really s- started a company that, like now in this context today you would call an impact investment in a way because they saw themselves as building a better world with the business they were building. And so, you know, they saw themselves as creating livelihoods, not just gigs. Um, They were employing people for the long haul. They had whole careers there and they earned enough to be able to buy houses and have healthcare and retirement and kids they could send to school. I mean, a lot fell apart, not just the relationship between employers, employees. I mean, what also fell apart was this huge 
constructed reality we we had in place for a long time, which was affordable education, including secondary and and graduate education. Um, we had roads and healthcare systems that functioned. We had retirement plans um, for people and pension funds. All of those things have been de deconstructed in the last forty to fifty years. Not not just this idea that employers had an obligation to their workers, and so you know, when the bottom fell out for workers, it fell out in a hundred ways, um, which is why it's so hard to address because you can't address it with a single measure or a single move. So yes, I want their, their wages to go up. Um, but I also want there to be a larger mentality shift um, in corporate America and, ac and across this country because we became a country that didn't really think that the people who work for an hourly wage matter, um, that they deserve as much human dignity that any of the rest of us deserve. And um, so that's what I'm hoping this film accomplishes. And that was Abigail Disney discussing her film, American Dream and other fairy tales. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News, I'm Sylvester Rivers. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Steve Zeltzer continues his interview with Lavana Knott, graduate student at UCLA, about the lessons learned by the UAW UCLA strikers in this two-part series. And I understand that there's been some retaliation uh, by the administration. Uh, the uh, director of human resources for uh, University of California is a former work for a former law firm, union-busting law firm. Uh, the university spends millions of dollars on union-busting lawyers and fighting the unions. Um, uh, this retaliation, they laid off uh, members or cut back on graduate students. Um, what is the union doing about it to publicize that to uh, not just the uh, college, but also to working people in California as far as having a, a powerful and strong uh, education system at UC system? Yeah. So, so yeah. For example, following following the strike, we're basically up against a UC system that has been offloading the costs of the new contract to individual departments, who are then scrambling to pay workers, and in many cases, sort of trying to find ways to informalize graduate workers by, for example, hiring undergrad uh, tutors or graders who are who are cheaper. So essentially, what we're doing is we're struggling against this really wealthy University of California system that chooses to spend its money on, for instance, a $4 billion investment in Blackstone, which is a predatory real estate investor, instead of paying its own workers a living wage uh, that keeps up with the cost of living. And so we are organizing across, uh, against this kind of austerity on a statewide level and within our own departments uh, um, and are doing so in coordination with, for example, the lecturers union and Senate faculty on this, as well as bringing undergraduates into the fold because, you know, um, our working conditions at the end of the day are their learning conditions. And I think there's more that may maybe we can be doing in, in terms of publicizing the sort of the fallout of the strike and the way in which the university has handled um, handled, handled all of this. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that's sort of going to be an evolving question in one of the most important ways in which we organize in the coming years uh, prior to our next contract negotiation in two years. And the University of California regents are appointed by the governor most of them are business people, multimillionaires. Um, and Richard Blum uh, passed away, married to Diane Feinstein, was one of them. And he was using money, apparently, uh, from the pension fund of the workers and putting it into his hedge fund. They, uh, the uh, regents, and I've been to these regent meetings, uh, are, are looking for a business plan on raising money. It seems like, in some cases, uh, they look at the university as a, a vehicle for en enriching themselves. Uh, as a business. Uh, do you see the corporatization uh, of the university as a uh, impediment and an obstacle for having a strong education system at the University of California? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's the biggest impediment to a really strong public education system in California. Um, and you know, actually, some of my some of my colleagues in the geography department are doing some really important research on um, the university's investments in land. And so we're really finding, I think we're finding out through this research and things that other people are, have been writing about as well, about the, the where the, the university's priorities lie, right? It's not necessarily in providing education as a service as much as, as it is in providing education as a commodity that it profits from. Um, and so this is something that I think is part of a broader political struggle that we will have to fold our labor struggle into. And I think that will rely to a large extent or to a significant degree on our ability to sort of understand that our labor struggle as workers employed in this institution is linked to the transformation of the institution itself as it becomes less and less a public serving institution and more sort of a corporate profit-driven entity. And I attended a rally uh, that was held by uh, the strikers, uh, UAW 2065, and it was kind of interesting at the Capitol because uh, they rallied there. They spent about 10 minutes in front of the Capitol and none of them mentioned Newsom. None of them mentioned the hundred billion dollar, uh, you know, uh, surplus that they had. Uh, none of them mentioned the fact that the Democrats are in charge of the university. <laughs> so it was rather strange that here they are at the state capitol with Newsom and, and the legislature, which does oversight at the university, and they don't talk about those issues. Yeah, I think that's something that we all realized during our strike too. Is that um, is that we have to sort of come to this, we have to, we have to figure out where, what our relationship is with the Democratic Party. And many of us believe that it's, that our, uh, that we are in a position of, that our relationship with, the, with both the University of California and the Democratic Party is a contradictory one. But I think our leadership doesn't necessarily see it that way. For example, during the strike, um, we had a, the UC requested that, the, uh, that, that a mediator be appointed to negotiate between our bargaining teams and the University of California. And uh, the mediator that was appointed was appointed by the governor um, and was... Um, publicized within the union as a really sort of progressive figure. Um, but his ties to the Democratic Party, I think, ultimately were evident in the contract that we that we ultimately ratified, which had certain limitations. And so I think identifying that as workers, we are not in alliance with the Democratic Party, but uh, that we have to struggle, that we have to fold our labor struggle into a, into a str broader political struggle against the sort of uh, neoliberal and imperialist values of the of the Democratic Party is, I think, really key for us. And of course, in California, you have some of the richest people in the world, Elon Musk, Larry Ellison, Oracle. It seems that the Democratic Party really doesn't want to challenge their wealth and say that, I mean, even public workers not having living wages, it seems to be a fundamental issue that, that public workers, and you are a public worker, should be having living wages. But it seems like that wasn't a priority. In fact, in covering this strike, that was didn't even have a debate in the in the legislature. The governor didn't even say anything about the strike. It was like complete silence, which was yeah. rather strange. When you have forty eight thousand workers on strike at a public institution, and there's complete silence by the politicians who are elected by the people of California, very yeah. weird. Yeah, I think maybe definitely it points to to the fact that we can't rely on the Democratic Party for any progressive change, but also I think points to maybe the devaluation of the kinds of academic labor that many of us do, certainly in the humanities and the social sciences, um, and maybe less so in the, in the STEM fields, but I think points to sort of the devaluation of that labor as well as maybe a public sector labor in general. So how can people find out about your uh, slate and your program and who's running? Yeah, so we have a we have a website. Um, our UCLA caucus has a website called, uh, that is rnfdu.org. It's the rank and file for a democratic union, uh, where you can find our platform and our slate and um, other similar caucuses across the campus, across the the state. I'm sorry, um, also have their own um, websites. And uh, you you might hear in the in the coming days about the outcome of the elections because elections are this coming Wednesday and Thursday. So we'll hear on Friday how things go. This is the Kingpin Shaheen from legendary Infinity 4FCs giving a shout out to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Y'all out.
Jesus, but they never take us from Jesus. He'll never let them defeat us. They know that they'll never beat us. God washed away all my evil. Turn me into a believer. You better believe it. Put some more time on my meter. I cannot wait till we meet them. They cannot kill us, stop us, or condemn us. They want us living like we ain't the winners. They keep on trying to tell us they don't ever help us. Cause we all a bunch of dirty sinners. It go up on my side. All this way on my mind. Don't you try bring up my past. Cause God erased my timeline. I'll be fine. Ready for what I put it all up on the line. Too scared to fight, then go let David kill Goliath. Walk through the valley, but the Lord is by my side. He heard my cry. Hold me down, hold me down, hold me down, hold me down. KBSK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. When every second counts, blood products can provide life-saving care. The American Red Cross asked the public to give blood or platelets during Trauma Awareness Month in May to keep hospitals prepared for all transfusion needs, including emergencies and cancer patients who are getting chemotherapy. Medical traumas can quickly deplete hospital blood banks, and type O negative blood donors are especially needed right now. One blood donation can be used to save the lives of up to three people. If you can give blood, please visit the Red Cross at redcrossblood.org to find a blood drive near you or call 800-RED-CROSS. That's 1-800-733-2767. Los Angeles County Fair permanently moves its jamboree from September to May to avoid the sweltering hot temperatures. Guests will be able to enjoy carnival rides, junk food, exhibits, concerts, and petting zoo. But in cooler May temperatures from May, from Friday, May 5th to Monday, May 29th. Apple weather forecast for this weekend in Pomona shows highs of 62 on Friday, 64 degrees on Saturday, and 67 degrees on Monday. In the South Bay area of Los Angeles and Inglewood, there's a 30% chance of rain in the forecast late tonight and a 50% chance of rain tonight in North Hollywood at 90.7 FM KPFK. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. An apparent attempted decapitation of Russia's government was thwarted Tuesday night as the country's air defenses blocked a drone attack on the Kremlin. Don DeBar has more. A drone attack on the Kremlin was thwarted by Russian air defenses Tuesday night. Responsibility for the attack? was unknown as of press time Wednesday. Washington and Kiev have denied involvement, while Moscow says it was done by Ukrainians. The Kremlin appeared to be discreet by not charging Washington with a hand at this attempt of regime change, which is the declared policy of a variety of U.S. government agencies, including the State Department. Some say Kiev does not have the technology nor the aerial data to attempt a deep penetration into Russian air defenses like this. Others warn that the U.S. government attempting regime change in Russia risks Moscow invoking item two of its nuclear military doctrine, which allows for the use of nuclear weapons in the case of a tangible threat to the Russian government. An attempted decapitation of the state would likely meet that condition. For more on this, we spoke with Mark Sloboda, analyst and commentator in Moscow via Skype, on Wednesday. Hiya, Mark. Well, I woke up to the news here in New York that this happened, and the first thing I thought of was 
uh, A, the context is that U.S. policy now is regime change um, in Russia, the State Department anyway, with their decolonized Russia and this other nonsense. And uh, point two of Russia's nuclear doctrine, I don't think anybody's crazy enough to actually push the button, but it's like they're tempting it at this point, uh, which may and. It seems like they're trying to at the same time because they're blaming it on saying some Russian dissidents did it from Kiev. They're saying this, that what they're trying to do was to spark some kind of uprising or opposition uh, in the streets kind of opposition uh, to the government in Russia. And all of that is a problem, I think. Don, okay, so what we know is that uh, early in the morning, uh, you know, uh, before dawn, uh, Russia time, uh, two unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, um, hit the Kremlin. Um, but I have to say, first of all, the damage was not serious. Um, and, and that's pretty clear from the videos. One of them essentially hit the flagpole. Right. And while it, it started a fire and some of the roofings in the aftermath, it didn't even bring down the flag or the flagpole. Right. Uh, another one hit uh, the Kremlin Senate palace building which despite the name it's actually the working residence of uh the president uh in the kremlin right uh first of all the kremlin actually a lot of americans get this wrong is is not saint basil's cathedral right, right. what you think right. of right. as the kremlin is a church that is the kremlin is a uh walled enclosure like a fort old fortress right, right. with a number of buildings in it that's actually next to the the saint basil's on the red square that's actually the kremlin um so um there was actually we know now a third drone involved in this attack that uh, went down outside of Moscow. Um, the damage was not serious. The Russian government says the drones were brought down by electronic warfare, but that is not at all clear to me from the pictures I've seen. It looks like they detonated, which is not usually the purpose uh, with electronic warfare, but, but we'll see. We don't know the exact types, but they were not large combat drones. They did not even appear to be big suicide drones it is unclear whether they are an indigenous model or some type of commercial pro jury rigged Um, we have seen multiple there has been a huge drone escalation from kiev we we also saw drone attacks in crimea today uh, in Feodosia with that were brought down. We saw drone attacks yesterday in Crimea, which were brought down. We saw drone attacks in Crimea over the weekend right. that a drone swarm that one of them got through and blow up an oil tank. The same right. thing in Kursk. We're seeing this across the board, right? Big drone attacks in advance of the Kiev regime offensive. There was also a drone attack last week that landed outside of Moscow. Uh, stuff four of C4 explosives um, that evidently ran out of fuel. Uh, so uh, that may have very well been a trial run testing distance or something of the of the sort. Um, it, for a certain kind of experimental Ukrainian um, models of suicide drones that have been developed in the last year, it is about the furthest extent of their range if they're fired from the closest um, Kiev regime-held territory in Ukraine in Kharkov. Uh, but it's also possible that they could have been released from an assassination team uh, wi- within uh, Russia. All right, there are some five million Ukrainians in Russia. Yeah, even within uh, you know, even within Moscow, really, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, most of them you know, refugees from the conflict, but it's very, it's very easy for the Kiev regime to, to penetrate it. Um, the Kiev regime has officially denied responsibility. Um, uh, that said, uh, Kiev regime officials already deleted their own Twitter posts, uh, celebrating the attack. Uh, but the internet never forgets you idiots. Um, and the, the, this is true. The Ukrainian post office has already released a stamp commemorating it. That shows the Kremlin in flames, which is a big exaggeration from what actually happened with the second drone coming in and a Kiev regime militant uh, in the foreground with his finger raised towards the Kremlin, just like they had a stape uh, created for the, the bombing of the Crimean Bridge. 
the Kerch right. Bridge across the Straits of Crimea, which they also, of course, didn't do. So, I mean, so take that for what it's right. worth. The, the Western mainstream media, you know, is already on, oh, it's a false flag. Russia plans a major escalation, and they needed this to generate public outrage and sentiment and support of it. Okay, that's just nonsense. I understand that's the way things are done in the U.S., right? right. I mean, you can't have a, a military conflict without some type of false flag to instigate it. That's your MO. But it's not actually needed here. In fact, actually, I would say that Russian society is demanding more escalation even before this from the Kremlin. And the right. Kremlin has actually been more restrained. And it's the public that is demanding things be escalated and ended faster. Well, the actual, the, the current military operation, in fact, that began last February, February yeah. last year, that was the result of a demand that was ongoing for eight years because eight of years. Kiev killing all the Russians in the east uh, of the country. In east Ukraine. Yeah, not just Russians, people of... Uh, East Ukrainians against the Maidan, the overthrow of their government in 2014. Right. It's not just ethnic Russians. There's there's a lot of ethnic Ukrainians who don't like what was being done in their right. country. It's more a question of identity and national identity conception than it is pure ethnicity. It's complicated. Right. Uh, but yeah, um, so I mean, this is a standard MO for Kiev, though political assassination. You'll remember the terrorist bombings of uh, Daria Dugina and Tatarsky that took out Russian media figures in Russia right. uh, recently. Um, you know, uh, but the, the political assassinations of officials, uh, activists, journalists, everyone in East U former East Ukraine, right? Uh, Kherson, Zaporozhye, Donetsk, Lugansk are an almost weekly basis. That, that happens all the time. It's regular. Uh, it's their, It's what they've done. Um, there was an, a, 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 just today, there was also an assassination team planning an attack on the governor of Crimea, Aksionov, uh, and that was stopped. Uh, there was also uh, an attack a couple days ago on the one of the deputy heads in Melitopol and also in the former East Ukraine uh, uh, that um, was partially successful. He was hospitalized as a result with injuries. But this is routine. This is happening all the time. It just doesn't meet uh, the Western mainstream uh, media headlines. Um, this is a major escalation. Obviously, Russia has reserved the right to respond as they deem anywhere, anytime as they deem necessary. Putin was not actually in the Kremlin at the time. He right. was in the working residence outside Moscow. So if it was a targeted assassinate, a real targeted assassination attempt, it was bad intelligence. It could have also been a symbolic attack. Uh, but uh, regardless, you know, it has to be treated as an attack on the head of state and the state. If a drone hit the White House, you know, uh, countries would be wiped off the face of the earth. Right. Let, 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 right. Let's face it like that. Uh, so um, it also has to be determined. Uh, was there Western involvement? Uh, was there Western intelligence, Western explosives, Western drones, targeting, uh, whatnot? Uh, because if it is, that's a whole new ball game. of course. Uh, that makes assassination of political leaders on the table uh, and, and opens it up for a quid pro quo response. Otherwise, I would expect that Russia's response will be limited. Uh, but Russian legislature is basically calling for the end of the world right now. There's outrage across Russia. There's a lot of uh, sentiment and uh, uh, it, I expect actually the Kremlin to be the restraining voice. Interestingly, Zelensky is not in Ukraine. He is in Finland, conveniently enough, and has already announced he'll be staying there longer than he planned, uh, presumably to avoid any response. Certainly there will at some point in time be some kind of a response. Yes. Uh, thanks a lot, Mark, for your time, and, and thanks for talking to us at last minute like this. No problem. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. Here is today's international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. In Paraguay, the candidate Santiago Peña has won the presidency after 99% of the votes were counted. He represents the Colorado party. Telesur's Gladys Casada has more.
Paraguay's Electoral Tribunal declared the ruling Colorado Party candidate, Santiago Peña, as the winner of the nation's presidential elections 2023. According to the Electoral Institution, after more than 99% of the votes counted, the Peña-Ayana ticket and the ballot received a 42.75% of the votes, while the runner-up formula, that of Alegre Núñez from the new coalition for Paraguay, got only 27.48%. On the third place, with 22 2.93% of the votes was the candidate for the far-right National Crusade Party, Paraguayoguas. The presidents of Argentina and Brazil, Alberto Fernandez and Lula da Silva, respectively, as well as Paraguay's sitting president, Mario Abdo Benítez, were the first heads of state to congratulate Santi Peña and his running mate, Pedro Ayana, for their electoral victory. The president of the Superior Court of Electoral Justice, Jorge Bogarín, thanked the citizens for their participation in the elections. Before 8 p.m., being 7.55, and having been scrutinized more than 90% of polling stations, we are able to say that our TREP system gives us as a result what you are seeing on the screen. Simply thank you. Thank you very much to all. Have a good night. The presidential candidate for the Colorado Party, Santiago Peña, addressed the nation after winning the presidential elections and ratified that he will not let the people down. Let us let us forget about the fatalism that we are doomed. We are the owners of our own destiny, of our future. We are not going to let you down. Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi has arrived in Damascus on his first visit since the start of the Syrian civil war that began in March 2011. RT correspondent Yusuf Jalali breaks down the importance of the visit. Well, it's the first ever visit by an Iranian president to Syria in over a decade and since the start of the civil war in the Arab country in 2011. Ibrahim Raisi is in Damascus for a two-day visit at the official invitation of uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Raisi is also accompanied by his um, foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian. Earlier, the Iranian presidential office announced that Bashar al-Assad and Raisi will talk about political, economic, and security ties. Well, the visit is very much significant given the fact that it comes against the backdrop of the recent uh, detente and reconciliation between two regional rivals, Iran and Saudi Arabia, which has also played into other developments in the region. Syria is beginning to uh, come closer and engage more with the Arab world. So Iran is a major uh, ally of Bashar al-Assad. Iran has time and again said uh, to the West that Bashar al-Assad and Syria is Iran's red line. Iran also provided uh, Bashar al-Assad and his army with uh, um, advisory military support to fight off Daesh terrorists from the Arab country. So when it comes to Iran and Saudi Arabia in Syria, Tehran and Riyadh used to stand, of course, on opposing fronts. Riyadh supported the opposition in Syria, while Iran backed Bashar al-Assad. And now we see that the recent rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia is uh, starting to play uh, into the developments uh, in Syria as well. So this is one of the reasons why this visit by uh, Raisi is very much significant. We see that uh, Tehran and Riyadh uh, are now beginning to open up to each other, are engaging more, and Syria is starting to uh, shift away from this uh, regional isolation uh, in the Middle East. and. Uh, we see that all of these developments um, that have led to the Middle East emerging from years of chaos seem to be not sitting well with uh, Israel and the West. The United States earlier said that uh, it does not advise its Arab partners to normalize with Bashar al-Assad. And we see just just a day before uh, the uh, Raisi's trip to Syria, Israel uh, launched airstrikes against Aleppo's international airport. The visit also comes as uh, Turkey and uh, Syria also are um, starting to open up to each other thanks to Russia. Russia has hosted officials from uh, Turkey, Syria, Iran, and Russia in Moscow to try to settle the long-standing disputes between um, Ankara and Damascus. So uh, Raisi's visit is seen as another piece uh, in the unfolding new chapter in the Middle East, which has seen a significant decrease in the role played by the Western powers in the Middle East uh, when the region is uh, starting to take matters into its own hands. 
anger over the British government's treatment of the crisis in Sudan continues to grow after the government refused to prepare plans to host refugees from the Muslim African country. Robert Carter has the details. As the evacuation of British nationals from war-torn Sudan is finally underway, criticism of the UK's response to the crisis remains widespread. The nighttime rescue of British diplomats from the Sudanese capital last weekend by special forces was meant to help expunge the bitter memory of Britain's chaotic withdrawal from Kabul two years ago that left many Afghans eligible for relocation to the UK stranded. But the recent operation only managed to secure the release of two dozen British diplomats. As the week progressed, criticism grew over London rescuing fewer nationals than other European countries, such as France and Germany. Reports suggest restrictive rules on who can board the flights had left people stranded. These protesters here in Birmingham are furious for a number of reasons. First and foremost, because of the conflict itself and the devastating impact it's having on civilians in Sudan. However, they're also bitterly disappointed at the British government's poor response to the crisis, its slow reaction to evacuate British dual nationals from Sudan, and also its unwillingness to accept any refugees from the conflict zone. The government has taken a firm anti-refugee stance, totally ruling out any plans when asked by journalists. The measures that we've announced are about doing what the British people want us to do as a government. That's why the Prime Minister made stopping the boats one of his core five pledges at the beginning of the year. British Sudanese citizens have noticed the sharp difference in support and solidarity the UK has shown to Ukrainian refugees as opposed to Sudan's suffering. I'm honestly not shocked when it comes to the UK government. Like They've done the same thing with Palestine, they've done the same thing with all these war-torn countries, and they're literally trying to deport people that come here. They're trying to deport them to um, Rwanda, and so it doesn't shock me, but like they're hypocrites, and we all know it. My family are leaving their houses not knowing whether they'll come back to it. They're separated from each other. Eid is supposed to be a celebration where they come together with each other and they celebrate together, they eat together, they pray Salah together. But this Eid, they didn't get to do nothing. You claim you want equality, you claim you want diversity, you claim you want equal rights and all of that, but practice what you preach. The UK's handling of the Sudan crisis and its flat refusal to host any refugees from the Muslim-majority African country will likely deepen the sense of distrust between British minorities and the state. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Here is a commentary on the effects of death row with Mumia Abu-Jamal of Prison Radio. Cracks in the abode of death. Few people really know the nature of death rows. It is used as a political prop by politicians and is thus a stepping stone to their gateway of power. But death row is really far more than that. It is a place where men and women, and until recently, even juveniles, were sent to live and die in aching loneliness and despair. That's because death row was specifically designed to isolate people physically and psychologically. On death row, American law reconstructed a caste of the untouchables where no one was allowed to touch you, not a child not a parent, not even one's very spouse. But that's not all. You were even isolated from other people on death row. You were in solitary confinement, locked in a cell, alone, for 23 hours a day, until you were executed or left death row. Many, perhaps most men, spent decades under such conditions. Why? 
because the state, by creating such extreme conditions, sought to make people into a kind of living dead, so broken that actual death will be but a relief. That fever seems to be breaking, at least in Pennsylvania. Here, today, there's a much smaller death row where the number has fallen to around a hundred. And men spend over eight hours a day out of their cells. They have contact visits. Now the state will no longer sign death warrants and is seeking the abolition of the death penalty. The tide seems to have turned. And death row is no longer the death row of cruel memory. With love, not fear, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. What it is, KPFK, I'm Angela Birdsong, and here is your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar. Black Women for Wellness is hosting a five-week mental health series on May 12th, 17th, 24th, 31st, and June 7th. For information about Black Women for Wellness or to RSVP for these free events, go to BWWLA. UCLA First Thursday's Joy Fest. Every first Thursday to connect with each other, celebrate the moment, enjoy tasty food and free entertainment in Westwood Village on Broxton Avenue. Thursday, May 4th, 12 noon to 10 p.m. Find details on UCLA IG or Eventbrite. Join the People's Assembly every first Thursday of the month to come together, support each, and find solutions to repair the damage from the pandemic and housing insecurities. May 4th, 6 to 7 p.m. at Community Coalition, 8101 Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles. Visit CocoSouthLA.org for more info. Calling new shooters to reinforce your basic shooting concepts and intermediate shooters to test your fundamentals and push beyond basic applications with Stephanie for the next Shooter's Cypher on Sunday, May 7th. Cypher's days are reserved for shooters that have already taken the basics of, t- of, the basics of pistol shooting with Stephanie and are not for inexperienced persons. For information about Cypher Days or to take the basics pistol shooting course, email shooterscypher at gmail.com. Meet Impu Kamut for weekly Kasa Taishi Shawan sessions on Zoom Tuesdays and Fridays at 8.30 a.m. Saturdays live in Lamert Park, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. For more information, call 213-447-7700. Join KPFK 90.7 FM parking lot movie presentation of Cinco de Mayo, The Battle of Puebla, about the French invasion on Mexico, 1862. This Saturday, May 6 at 645 in KPFK's parking lot, 3729 Cahuenga Boulevard in North Hollywood. This is a free event. And any donations received will support our community radio station. And the community is invited. Get your green on with Jabril Muhammad of Green Thumb Essentials for a five-week beginner gardening class held on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 7 to 8 p.m. on Zoom. Covering everything from basic gardening knowledge to soil prep, compost, pest control, and more learning everything you need to know to start growing your own food and connect with nature. For more info, search Green Thumb Essentials on Eventbrite. 
Althea Moses Fitness Club, the first Saturday of every month, 9 to 10 a.m. at Edward Vincent Park, Junior Park in Inglewood, in front of the tennis courts. For more information about this Saturday, May 6, call 310-740-1157. That's 310-740-1157. Yoga at the California African American Museum, CAM, Saturday, May 6, 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Bring your own yoga mat for this free outdoor event. Visit CAM, CAAMuseum.org under programs for more information about this and other events at camp. That's caamuseum.org under programs. Meet up with author and Westbury native Donna Cooper as she shares her journey as an author of both fiction and nonfiction with insights into the writing and publishing process, along with a look at her most recent novel, a cozy murder mystery, Killer Actress. Thursday, May 11th, 7 p.m. at Westbury Library, 445 Jefferson Street in Westbury, New York. Call 516-333-0176 for more information and to find her book on Amazon. Come up with Come Up LA Wellness Market to shop, dance, eat, vibe and connect with local black owned brands, businesses, creatives, entrepreneurs, while taking in the sights and sounds of emerging live artists and DJs. Saturday, May 13th, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the Heart Department, 1327 Willow Street in Los Angeles. To RSVP or to be a vendor, visit thecomeupla.com. NAMI Connection Peer Support Group for any adult who has experienced symptoms of a mental health condition meets every Monday at 6 p.m. in English, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. in Spanish. On the second and fourth Thursdays, Family Support Group at 7 p.m. NAMI Family Support Groups are free, confidential, and safe groups of families helping other families who have loved ones living with mental health challenges. For more info and to register, for these free mental health Zoom activities, go to NAMIUrbanLA.org. Women learn self-defense with Professor Zahalia Saturdays, 12.30 p.m. at Bluff Park in Long Beach near Ocean Boulevard and Junipero Avenue. Find Zahalia, Z-A-H-A-L-E-A on Instagram for details. To find food pantries near you in the USA, go to foodfinder.us. To locate a Los Angeles Tenants Union meeting in your area online or over the phone, visit latenantsunion.org. For mental health resources, crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to namiurbanla.org under resources. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions, and you've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. KPFK is a progressive media outlet challenging corporate media perspectives and providing a voice to voiceless communities. Thank you for keeping KPFK strong and independent source of music, arts, news, and information. Although our spring membership fund drive is over, you can still become a KPFK member. Go to kpfk.org or call 818-985-5735 and follow the prompts to donate. But we just want to thank you for for the donations that you have made um, during our spring fund drive. And remember, KPFK is your key to peacemaking, freedom, and knowledge. If you want to become part of our news show, if you have a news story, idea, comments, please email us at news at kpfk.org. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all Rebel Alliance news contributors. We hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. Coming up next is Feminist Magazine.
With the new car business down right now, you might think that we don't need your vehicle donation. However, the market for donated vehicles is very strong. Please donate your old car, truck, RV, or motorcycle to us at 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. Or online at kpfk.org. We'll take care of everything, and you'll help support the quality programming you hear on KPFK. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. Or donate online at kpfk.org.